Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your host, Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Blind Spots. Today's episode, we are going to be talking all about how different cognitive and emotional biases show up in investing and what you can do to remedy this. It's like a preconceived notion on how you perceive something, and that's a lot of perceived, but it's basically blind spots that you might have, preconceived notions that you might have about anything. And lucky for us, money and investing is emotional and it's packed with biases. I have biases, you have biases. Mm-hmm. Our clients have biases. Everyone has biases. Now, now the key is just acknowledging that, you know, a lot of people have these biases and they don't think they have the biases. That's the most dangerous type of investor. Uh, so self-awareness in life and investing is a huge tool. So what we're going to do today is talk about the top three biases that we've seen and how people can mitigate those. Some you can educate out of like a cognitive bias. You can teach someone uh, the perils of their thinking. Emotional biases are much different where you can't really teach someone out of it, but you can zoom out and focus on the big picture, provide evidence, contact to help them navigate some of these things. But the first key with any bias is just recognizing we all have biases. I was going to say the first step to recovery is admitting that you have a problem. So hopefully pointing out some of these will uh, help shine the mirror back on thyself. Well, and the goal is not to shame anybody. Again, we all have biases. The goal is to think better, think Mm -hmm. clearer and make better investment decisions. Yeah. So that's, that's the whole goal of us talking about the behavioral side of investing. And I've said this many times in the digital age, when we're all plugged in, we have cell phones. It's easy to, it's easy to forget that markets are humans interacting with other humans and Every crisis is different. Every reason for a recession is different. Every bear market is different, but the investor reaction is very much predictable. So we spend more time writing, talking about blind spots and behavioral biases because, uh, because it is very relevant to investment outcomes. So I think that that's what separates pure from a lot of other advisors is that we very much understand the human psychology side. I've gone, I've gone deep in it in my, in my CFA studies. I write about it almost every week and it really is a, a huge potential asset. If you can think correctly and on the flip side, it can be a liability if you're not aware of some of these blind spots. And it's not a coincidence that this podcast name is blind spots. That was for a reason. So. This is part one to a two-part series on biases. Part one, we're going to be talking all about investment biases and how biases show up in investment decisions. Part two will be all about financial planning, the holistic side of making financial decisions. All right, let's start with fear of missing out, FOMO. We've talked about this before, but there's some good examples that we can bring up. There's some really good examples from the last couple of years. So FOMO, fear of missing out, is essentially investors piling into an asset class that they usually would not chase because they don't want to miss out on gains. A couple of examples from the past few years. Let's start with the COVID economy. 
themes. So back during COVID, we were all locked inside. Some of these work from home, entertain from home, eat from home companies really took off. So think Uber Eats or DoorDash or Peloton or Netflix, Zoom. So human behavior doesn't change overnight, but a lot of people thought it did. So investors were piling into a lot of these companies thinking that humans would never go out to eat again. Humans would never go to movies again. Humans would never um, go, go to a gym again. And we, we warned people at the time that human behavior doesn't change overnight. But what we saw was a lot of investors pile into some of these stocks that were going up 60, 70, 80%. It didn't take long once the economy started to open again for those companies to fall just as fast as they went up. So for investors that were chasing performance, they got their faces ripped off. Uh, the same thing happened in cryptocurrency. So back in 2021, almost every asset class was going up. There was a lot of talk about web 3.0, cryptocurrency, NFTs, digital art. A lot of investors, a lot of hot money went into these asset classes, which you could loosely call them asset classes. And many people lost everything. I mean, there was a lot of fraud, rug pulls, uh, bad projects, hot money chasing flimsy projects or fraudulent projects. It was just a disaster. Um, so, so those are two examples. And then looking at traditional finance too, I think a lot of mutual fund companies, you know, the ones that are rated five star by Morningstar, the ones that have performed really well over the last one, three, or even five years, m many investors choose their 401k mutual fund investments based on those rankings. And there's empirical evidence to suggest the higher the ranking, the better the past performance, the worse those funds do over the next one, three and five years. So there's, there's empirical evidence to back this up. Um, you know, we, we get odd, uh, odd questions from prospects asking to see our one and three and five, five year performance. And I think that's an important to understand someone's investment approach and how they've done, but that tells you nothing about the quality of the advisor, about the investment approach going forward. That's such a small sample size and it, it's such a broken process for choosing an advisor because performance comes and goes, right? What's in favor becomes out of favor and vice versa. And the same principles could apply to choosing an advisor. Maybe their investment approach was in vogue the last three years becomes out of vogue the next three years. And you end up with people that are disappointed, that are anchoring to the wrong things and it just doesn't end well. So for someone who either has kind of followed the bandwagon FOMO'd into these stocks that we've talked about before, two parts to it. How do you remedy once you're already in it and how do you prevent it from happening again in the future? So the first part of your question was if they FOMO'd into something, how can you, how can you unwind that? Mm -hmm. That that's tough because if something has worked, right? If you FOMO'd into something and you look back the last three months and you've made money, it's really hard to convince someone that that's a mistake. Um, so it's, it's, it's more along the lines that, and I've said this before is, is identifying the game that you're playing, right? Like if you are about to retire and you're going to draw 4% of your portfolio, you don't need to take risk, but you want to generate a reasonable return. It makes no sense for you to deviate outside of a, a simple tax efficient, low fee portfolio. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, but what happens is. People are influenced by their friends, by social media, by the news. And the, the, there's a saying out there. It's like, um, nothing is worse than seeing your neighbor get rich or something like that. Right? Mm -hmm. Like people, people 
want to mirror those that are successful or that are doing things and they might not fully understand it, but they see the end result and that's someone making money. And it's been said, there's nothing worse than see a peer making money and you're sitting there in a boring, you know, US bond portfolio or something like that. So zooming out, don't get caught up in fads. Don't chase, don't chase performance, especially if you don't need to take risk, right? I'm a big fan of saying, don't take bets. Don't take risk where the best outcome doesn't change your life, but the worst one can derail your plan. And I think that that's, that's a pretty good rule of thumb, especially if, if you're retired, you have more than enough, you don't need to seek risk. You've kind of just answered it, but you've said before to client that the worst thing you could do is be right. Yeah. Explain that. <laughs> this is especially true for someone starting their investment journey, or they just came into a lot of money and they happened to make a lucky trade. Like, let's say, you know, they thought the market was going to go down. They sold everything. So they were fully invested, sold everything. Market goes down by 20%. They get reinvested at the perfect time. Market goes up. That oftentimes a lucky trade is the worst thing that can happen to people because they think it can be repeated. They, they try to do it again and again. And the more large active decisions that you make, an active decision would be being fully invested, selling everything, going to cash, and then at a point in the future, getting reinvested again. The, the more time someone does that, it's almost 100% certainty that they're going to blow things up. Okay, the more decisions you make, the more likelihood that you're going to be wrong. As the dollars get greater, as the stakes get higher, uh, it's a dangerous line to walk on. And we've seen people that had multiple millions of dollars that have imploded everything, leaving themselves with a couple hundred thousand. And it's, it's, it's really sad. Um, mm -hmm. so, so the way you mitigate that is you have a core long-term portfolio, say it's 90% of your investable assets. You can take 10% or 5% of your investable assets and express your active themes, day trade, uh, speculate, take risks. We, we really encourage that outside of the core portfolio, because you can scratch your degenerative itch while still keeping the core of your wealth intact. Yeah. I was going to say, you call it scratching your degenerative itch. Toby calls it having a sandbox to play mm -hmm. in. Same oh. thing. Yeah. I think it's kind of a fun way to look at it. Okay. So that's fear of missing out. Let's talk about hindsight bias. This is another good, um, COVID example. And you have another one yourself as well. Hindsight bias is basically when everybody is freaking out in the moment, no one knows what happens next, which is just, just normal investing. And as time passes, someone would look back and be like, oh, I knew that would happen. Oh, I knew markets would bounce back. After it's like, mm -hmm. no, you did not. We were all locked inside. There's no playbook for a pandemic. Market was down 37% in 30 days. A lot of people were scared S-less because there was no historical context for that. The Spanish flu of 1916 is, is not a relevant playbook. But as we emerge from that, markets snap back just as quickly as they fell. You know, you had some people saying, oh, I knew that would happen. And it's, 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 it's disingenuous at best, um, and it's, it's delusion at worst. So I, I've got a saying to, to put a bow on that is every crisis in the moment feels like the worst thing ever. Every crisis in hindsight, when, when you can look back and see how things ended, seems like an obvious opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think people just need to be honest with themselves. Like in the moment, like this debt ceiling thing feels like the worst thing ever. Okay. Let's say it goes down. Let's say the market goes down by 10%. A deal gets done. Market goes up by 15%. You know, you're going to get a, 
you're going to get a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks that say, oh, you, you know, I knew that was going to happen. You know, we should have sold everything and then we should have bought back. And it's like investing doesn't work that way. It's easy to say what you should have done in hindsight, but that's not how investing works. I'm going to ask you the same question as the last one. How do you prevent it in the future? What signals could you look for, things that you're thinking about to kind of, it's kind of preventing the regret of, not really regret, but. I mean, so, so, so I think I know what you're asking. And I think the best, the best remedy, and this is true if you're a do-it-yourself investor or if you're an advisor working with a client, is just document your thought process. Like in real time, if, if you make a trade or if you're thinking of making a trade, just write out your narrative, write, write out your thesis, because I can tell you it's impossible to recreate human fear and greed and emotion in real time. Once you remove from the situation, things become clear that, and that's, that's really hindsight bias, but, but the best approach is just documenting the conversations, capture how you're feeling in real time. And then once you remove from that situation, look, let's say in six months, like you can go back and say, oh, that, that really was a scary time or, you know, I wasn't thinking clearly. Um, but, but, but if you're going through and you're just looking back and saying what you should have done without context, I think it can lead you, it can lead you to some incorrect conclusions. I'm a big advocate for journaling. I think that mm -hmm. there's a lot of power in putting like, thought to paper and it can just kind of help you flush out some of your ideas and thoughts, but it's always interesting going back to what mm -hmm. you were thinking about and something that you thought was a like a decision of sound mind is totally not. And it's right. just, I think it can be really eye-opening. I can tell you every successful trader or do-it-yourself investor writes down exactly what they're thinking during the moment they make a trade, buy or sell. That's a way for them to be honest, to hold themselves accountable, to capture how they were thinking or feeling in the moment. And a really good trader, a really good investor will go back and look at that just to see if, if emotion crept into their investment process or if their thinking or if their process was broken in some way, shape or form. But it's a great way to reflect and to capture that really hard thing to recreate in real time, which is human emotion. Mm. Okay, let's talk about recency bias. There's a little bit of overlap here, but. So at, as I think about this, recency bias and FOMO are very closely connected, mm -hmm. right? And recency bias is another one that we see a lot where people will take current themes, current performance, current trends in markets and extrapolate that, extrapolate that out into the future. Mm -hmm. And it works both ways. So back, back in 2021, when markets were going up and nothing could miss, people thought that would continue forever. And a lot of folks got burned in the first quarter, the first half of 2022, when basically everything was down. Okay. So performance chasing up market, I think that's going to last forever. I'm going to pile in, take more risks than I set out to. Rug gets pulled out from under them, they get crushed. Now I actually see the opposite, where be, being a pessimist, there's, there, there's so much pessimism out there. And we track all the sentiment and sentiment is approaching financial crisis levels. Like people are feeling almost worse now than they did during the financial crisis. And there's a lot to be worried about from war, debt ceiling, COVID, supply chains, inflation, the Fed. A lot of folks are extrapolating all of this doomsday stuff well out into the future 
And I think they've swung the other way. A lot of folks have PTSD from 2022 because it was so tough. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks are taking current trends, which aren't so good, and extrapolating them out into the future. And I actually challenge people to, to read headlines and a couple blogs ago, to read headlines and not look at the markets and try to guess what the S&P has done this year. The S&P is up like 7% this year. But if you just read the headlines, you think the world was it. Yeah. Okay. Last but not least, let's talk about loss aversion. So all of these biases that, all, all of these biases that we've talked about, I think stem from one major bias and that's investors hate losses more than anything. They hate losses more than they enjoy gains and every bias, every tendency to sell every potential impulse, emotional trade or reaction stems from investors trying to avoid losses. And there's kind of a funny tongue in cheek saying a lot of prospects will say to me or even clients, oh, I want to make money, but I don't want to lose money. And that's just not realistic. I know some people are kidding, but, but some people mean it. And that's just not how investing works. Like in order to get the 8% a year or whatever the stock market has done over the last hundred years, you have to experience loss. Like the market doesn't slowly melt up. You know, it does mm -hmm. this, it does this over time. So think about losses as the cost of admission. It's just a tax. You can't get 10% without getting the occasional dip. And the way I think about it, and I, the way I think people should think about it, is think in probabilities, right? So 70% of the time, the market bleeds higher. 20% of the time, it goes down. 10% of the time, stuff gets weird. Market goes way down. Think COVID, think 2022. So, so weird stuff does happen, but if you're patient, if you're saving, if you're not... Uh, trying to market time, if you're letting compounding do its thing over time, the stock market is the most powerful wealth generating source the world has ever seen. So time, savings rate, compounding, all of that is your friend. I, I know it's easy to get sucked into the vortex of what could go wrong, mm -hmm. but you're better off just building a portfolio that reflects the way that you feel about risk, making adjustments around the margin. And if, if you really want to you know, market time or express your active themes, carving out that sandbox or slush fund or whatever you want to call it and, and trading a small percentage of your investable assets. Great advice. I think we should go back to the same question on this one too. Okay. Maybe it, not so much in hindsight after the fact, but prevention for the future. How to condition someone to accept that losses are a normal outcome? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's what comes down with engaging in history. I mean, you can look at history, like, like those percentages mm -hmm. that I rattled off, that's not just made up. That's, that's pretty much what's happened. Right. So I'm not saying everyone should go out and buy hundred percent equities. Um, you should identify how you feel about risk and build a portfolio that reflects that. And that you should understand that negative outcomes are part of investing. Like, like last year was a, a really shock to the system. Um, but that would be in that 10% where occasionally things get really weird. And last year was one of those years where it was the first year in like 90 years that the S and P 500 and the 10 year treasury bond were both down over 10%. Mm -hmm. It was deeply uncomfortable. But I think once you engage in history and understand that that's a potential outcome that solidifies our point, not to get caught up in FOMO and chasing gains, because sometimes things work until they don't like no one saw. From, from 2021 to 2022, and I wrote about this, it really was the year of the 180. Everything that we've known to be true flipped overnight. 
low inflation, steady inflation gave way to high inflation. Zero rates gave way to higher rates. What worked yesterday didn't work today. I mean, bonds were not a safe haven. Every asset class was down with the exception of cash. I mean, it, it was a brutal reversal. And everyone that got caught up in those trends like art funds and Kathy Wood and Tesla and big tech, they all got absolutely smashed, which is why you need to balance this stuff out. Be mindful of your biases, identify the game that you're playing and engage in history. Because again, negative outcomes are part of investing. Last question before we wrap this up. How do you set expectations with clients before stuff gets weird? I mean, I talk about a lot of this stuff. I talk about, you know, a lot of investors, a lot of advisors, when the stuff hits the fan, they, they make it up as they go. And a lot of folks think markets go down. That's the time to do, to do something. That's, that's not true at all. A lot of the work in building the right portfolio that can withstand several market conditions or multiple market conditions, both up, flat, and down is identifying how someone feels about risk and building a portfolio that reflects that. That's, that's really step one. Step two is having a non-emotional framework for managing risk, right? So when things get weird, you have a, a predetermined or at least a playbook for how you're going to lever down risk. And when things get better, like a perfect example is 2023, the headlines are, are horrible. Investors feel just as bad as they did during the financial crisis. But at Pure Portfolios, we, we have a process for adding back risk. So despite all the emotion out there, despite everyone thinking things are going to get worse, we've had a process to filter all that out and slowly add back to equities, which has helped performance this year. Same thing happened in 2020 when markets snapped back just as quickly as they, as they fell. The global economy was shut down, huge disconnect between what markets were doing. They were screaming higher versus what the economy was doing. We had a process to add back risk. So try to take human emotion out of it as much as you can by identifying one, the way you feel about risk and building a portfolio, but having a framework for making decisions for when things get better and for when things get worse. What you don't want to be doing is having your own personal biases leak into your investment process. And I know politics are a hot button right now, very polarizing. I've seen so many people leak in their politics to their investment portfolio and mm -hmm. it lends them either to be, it usually lends them to be super conservative because they think the opposite party is going to blow everything up. And if that's the way you think, I mean, one, I think if you're getting sucked into politics, I think you've already lost, but two, there, there's zero evidence to suggest that introducing politically charged emotion into your investment process is a good thing. It's, it's quite the opposite. Okay. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. That's a lot. That's a lot. But if you have any questions about making emotional decisions, your personal biases, how to identify them and how to get out of it once you are in it, shoot us a note at insight at pureportfolios.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blind Spots. We will see you in the next one.